welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by David Fincher's Dark Soul. Dude, you make some really dark films. Try a romantic comedy or a buddy cop movie. Or maybe a cartoon sometime. Cheer up a little. Anyway, let's dim the lights and start the show. But not too far. Maybe leave that door open a crack. Right, Mr. Fincher? Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Kentucky Slums, the only chicken-flavored cigarettes you'll ever need. If it's got to be smoked chicken, then it's got to be Kentucky Slims. One day, these are going to be real. Right. <laughs> That's the goal, right? One day. Welcome to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a movie podcast, unless you listen to our last episode, in which uh, we analyze and break apart films and try to become better filmmakers and uh, writers and maybe on some level just movie appreciators. I was listening to one of my favorite new podcasts uh, called Script Notes, and they had a writer on who actually worked on Mindhunter. I have nothing interesting to add from their conversation about Mindhunter, but the one thing that I was amused by is whenever they were introducing her and they were talking about uh, procrastination, and writers are really good. I think everyone is pretty good at procrastination, but nothing is probably uh, as familiar for a writer as staring at a blank page and figuring out how to do anything but that and listening to professional screenwriters discuss how they procrastinate it's it's like i don't know how uh, a sommelier gets drunk you know, it's, <laughs> it's such a specific weird like oh that's interesting like for them they were talking about they go through and just keep revising their title page which adds nothing to the project <laughs> and they'll go back and look at other title pages and uh yeah just becomes this form and i was like yeah that's interesting my form of procrastination is usually i work on something that i that i have been putting off so the one way to get me to work on a project that i want to put off that i keep putting off is to give me another project that i equally dis-want just like working on and so yeah, yeah. it's like uh, instead of that like right now i'm supposed to be working on cooking videos uh and i'm like no instead i'm gonna like read up and write on my fitness journey <laughs> like, yeah yeah anything but and for months it was hard for me to sit down and even write about that so yeah. it's all about finding something that you really don't want to do for me uh, <laughs> then you can force me into doing my actual work <laughs> yeah my, i think my form of procrastination is to like i i get obsessed about it and do it hardcore more than anything else in my life until a point, And then I just don't do it at all <laughs> anymore after that. It's over. That's it. I'm like, I'm the epitome of bottle burn rocket, hot, burn hot and, and burn out fast. You know what I'm saying? Um, if I like write a short or something, I'll write the entire thing in one night and I'll never look at it again. <laughs> it's like, nope, that's done. But it's so satisfying to <laughs> yeah, at least yeah. have that moment. And you're like, man, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I won't write anything unless I like already have it in my head and then I'll write the whole thing and then I'm done. <laughs> that's it. Edit? No. No, I don't do that. It's very Sylvester Stallone of you. <laughs> like he what, just, does he do that? Yeah, he'll sit down for like two or three days and write the whole script. And then, I don't know, he probably ends up with like 200 pages of crap. And then he revises and edits it down <laughs> to the good stuff. Wait, there's a script to Rambo? Right. <laughs> they just showed I mean, up in like, the forest with... Yeah, it's like a bunch cameras. of other people saying words, but... Him looking mean just and like, flexing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, what are we doing today? 
Oh man. So this was a request. We are, we are doing mind Hunter. Oh yeah. So if you guys have not seen mind Hunter, uh, make sure to pause this episode and go watch all the episodes of it. Um, it is definitely something that you will want to, uh, um, uh, binge on for sure. Yeah. So. And it probably could use a, a disclaimer on top of that. Like this yeah. is pretty violent stuff. Uh, it's, you know, serial killers and, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so, some of the conversation is probably going to touch on that. And I know at a minimum, the soundbite that I'm playing here in a minute will be very violent uh, in, I don't know, description, okay. even though you're not seeing it. Ugh. But yeah. we're going to talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about cinematography and how they use color and camera movement, um, editing and writing and storytelling. Some of the uh, what I think are subtle psychological inserts into the, uh, the story and other such stuff and things and stuff. Junie. Okay, so quick synopsis. Uh, Set in the late 1970s, two FBI agents are tasked with interviewing serial killers to solve open cases. Created by Joe Penhall, directed by David Fincher and others. Cinematography by Eric Messerschmidt, featuring Jonathan Groff as Holden Ford, Holt McElhaney as Bill Tench. Uh, Anna Torv as Dr. Wendy Carr, Hannah Gross as Debbie, Albert Jones as Jim, and Cameron Britton as Ed Kemper. Conditioned. Right. You see, Bill, I knew a week before she died I was going to kill her. She went out to a party. She got soused. She came home alone. I asked her how her evening went. She just looked at me. She said for seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. So I got a claw hammer and I beat her to death. Then I cut her head off. I humiliated her. I said, there, now you've had sex. If there's one thing I know, it's this. A mother should not scorn her own son. If a woman humiliates her little boy, he will become hostile and violent and debased, period. So, Mindhunter. <laughs> so it's a comedy. Right. Very lighthearted. Dramatic comedy. Brought to you by Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the Wally of uh, right. dramas. So I know we've both seen this, you know, over the season one was released and then season two was released. What was it like for you kind of rewatching it, kind of squished all together? Did you get through it all? Yeah. I will say that if it was if it wasn't based on true events, I know some of it obviously wasn't sure. right. But if it wasn't based on true events, it probably would not have the weight mm-hmm. that it that it did uh, for me the first time and this time. I think this time it totally holds up. Like I enjoyed it from the beginning to the end, and it, and every time an episode ended, I was like foaming to get to the next one. Um, so they did. A, I felt like they did a really good job of making me want to just let 
you know, not hitting any buttons, let it keep go on and, and autoplay to the next episode. And I thought the acting was just like so fantastic. I actually thought that the acting was better the second time I watched it than the first. The first time I thought, who was it? Jared Goff? Jonathan Groff. Jonathan Groff. Groff. Yeah, yeah. I was like not really getting his character I, I, mm. the first time I saw it. I was, uh, I kind of did, but I thought, is he just like kind of a okay actor or is this how the guy really was, right? You know, Holden Ford, how, how he really was. And then the, the second time I watched it, I realized, oh no, he's just a really good actor yeah. and this is just the role he's playing. And it made it that much better. And, and I also like, I liked a lot about the story. Uh, okay. I liked the acting. The writing is brilliant. It's scary and dark and twisted, but not in, in the normal, either gory, gross way or startling where things jump out at you way. You're just uncomfortable the entire time watching it. Uh, and so I really, I mean, you know, you watch this kind of show to be uncomfortable. Let's be honest. You're not going to watch this and, and, you know, hope to feel like, you know, like lovey butterflies at the end. You're wanting to feel that way. And so you do, you, you really do. Yeah. I just thought it was, it was more enjoyable even the second time I watched it for all those, those reasons, acting, the writing, the directing, the lighting, um, the color was fantastic. Um, uh, it was vibrant when it needed to be, but it always had this kind of like bluish green hue kind of thing, which I, I think is typical for this kind of style. Right. But I don't feel like they like overdid it too much, you know? And it, anyway, I just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was great. That's awesome. Now, I've, I think I probably had the same reaction, especially whenever you're talking about uh, Jonathan Groff, like as you're settling in the first time around, you're like, this guy is just kind of dry. Totally. And yes. then the second time around, because I think you know where everything's going, you have buy-in a lot faster. Yeah. Especially knowing how that the end of season one ends with him having his freak out and you're like, no, there's a human being under there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no, I, I think I had largely the same reaction. I was kind of dreading going through it again. I mean, it's 19 episodes yeah, of dark stuff, but exactly like you said, once I hit play, it just pulls you in mm -hmm. and it's relentless, like yeah. relentless in its simplicity even. And I just couldn't like every time I, I probably got through it in uh, two, two days, two and a half days. I just could not stop. And I still had a lot of life that I was doing around this. Yeah. But if I was home, I was like, okay, next one. <laughs> like, here we go. <laughs> and yeah, I was just enthralled by all of it. And there's a lot of interesting, you know, things I'll definitely touch on. Uh, but I really like Bill Tinch. I mean, I love all the actors in here. And oh, yeah. personally, I was upset that Debbie didn't come back in season two. I really love Debbie and what yeah. she brought to the to the show. But watching Holt as Bill Tinch, it, there's something gripping about this guy. I mean, he's no one. I think everyone in the show is holding like their cards to their to their face they're not no one's trying to let you see their cards ever yeah and they do that really well as fbi agents of never giving whoever they're talking to a hint at what they're feeling or thinking and i know that's a part of being an fbi agent so it's played really really well 
and then they'll have these little moments uh, where they cut away and they they show how someone's reacting to a story or something, and you're like, yeah, there's your cards. (laughs) 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 Yeah, there you are. (laughs) Yeah. And it's beautiful, and I think they use that to really great effect, Um, and I'll touch on that a little bit in the editing, but there's this show just has that very... David Fincher calls it, he likes the idea of an omniscient narrator. And that's how he kind of presents a lot of his cinematography, you know, so locked off and precise. And for me, it always kind of comes across as uh, more sterile and emotionless. And I don't, not to say that this stuff doesn't carry any emotion. It does. It certainly places more value on the actors kind of delivering that and the, the scenarios delivering that. And it's interesting because you he can withhold so much emotionality from the camera and still have it deliver and, and hit you in the, the heart and in the head and in this show in the gut. Yeah. That's to me kind of incredible. That's it's, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's excellent storytelling. It's an excellent grasp of, you know, whatever your themes are or whatever your character is going through and how to present that and uh, still gain that narrator perspective that he talks about. Uh, and it's, God, you could break down any of his films, especially his last, you know, 10 or so and just walk away saying, wow, how the hell did he make me feel that? Yeah. Um, Cause a lot of the times, man, you watch a movie and whether, you know, Danny Boyle or Christopher Nolan, they're technicians on a different level, uh, on an emotional level, I would say, especially Danny Boyle. And it's, it's so much easier to get these things through with using camera movement to add the emotional qualities and, uh, the, your lens selection. But Fincher's like, no, we're going to stay in mediums and wides until I really want you to feel like the close up. Yeah. He's going to hold those close ups back. Yeah. And it's, floors me like i (laughs) i'm in awe for sure because i would never want to shoot this style well is that something that you you can't really get away with in a film but you could maybe in an episodic show i don't think so because i feel like a lot of his movies if you go watch girl with a dragon tattoo which is thick with you know drama and heartache yeah um or fight club even yeah a lot of wides and that yeah Yeah. and he just really is so uh, seven is like there's a great seven video on that like there's so many of these emotionally gut wrenching stories that he knows how to tell through just <laughs> letting it come to you and yeah. through uh, these kind of subliminal messages that, that he uses relentlessly. Like, who, what, did you have a favorite season, first or second? Oh, that's so tough. I mean, probably the first season, I guess. But once you get into the Atlanta monster, that's gripping. Yeah. Man, especially yeah. that final episode whenever they wow. get to face to face with them. Yeah. Oh, like in that, I, I should have put that actor in here. I don't know who it is uh, who plays Wayne, uh, the, the killer, because he is freaking unbelievable. Who are we talking about? Dennis uh, Wayne Raider. Uh, um, it should see. be the BTK killer or no, no not the BTK, the uh, Atlanta killer. Christopher Livingston. Where is he? Wayne Williams. He's only in the last, the very final episode. Oh, there he is. Yes. Oh my gosh. This guy goes in and just puts on a clinic. Uh Like he is just effortless in portraying, you know, this psychopath. Um, And he's going toe to toe with these season regulars and he steps in at the last minute 
and just owns it. Like mm-hmm. it's really incredible what he does with the holding back and uh, his portrayal. I mean, there's a mountain of evidence that that is supposed to tell me as the viewer that he is he's doing this. And yet his performance is telling me maybe he didn't. And they're just screwing with him. This is a nice guy. But then obviously, like you kind of like start to realize. But at first you're like, why are they bothering this guy? He's actually like, yeah, he's probably just, you, you know, you can feel that cat and mouse game that he's playing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely he's playing it to the bone and his mannerisms, his little subtleties are all kind of creeping out uh yeah i was just blown away by this guy um christopher livingston huh i'll remember you i remember you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like everybody was super creepy yeah like they did a really good job in casting like i'm i'm looking right now i'm looking at pictures of the actual killers and the 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 actual cast side by side and they're like creepily look exactly like him wow in so many ways like especially ed kimper oh my <laughs> oh, god yeah. yeah yeah no no well i was gonna say especially especially christopher livingston uh-huh. looked exactly like wayne williams the guy that got to play manson holy crap yeah looks exactly like manson talks moves like him it's it's insane uh let's see the elmer wayne henley guy the uh, the white guy, the really skinny, oh like, right, you know, uh, had longer hair. Oh my gosh, Berkowitz, the guy who had who played Berkowitz, yeah, just like him, dude. That's <laughs> insane. That's insane. It's anyway. So impressive. And that would be the kind of thing that I would probably not stress too hard. I'd be like, you know, if we get the general size and shape, I'm probably gonna be fine. Yeah. Um, but, but no, they 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 win. nail it. The the guy that played Ed Kemper, uh, what's his name? I want to find his name. Cameron Britton. Oh, okay. You know it already? Well, it's in the, the, the notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dude. Insane. Like, just like the dude. Oh my God. The guy's even creep. Oh, like his, guys, his mannerisms no. are amazing. Like <laughs> yes. his whole reserved upper register voice and uh, yeah. delicate giant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes. It's the right amount of creepy. Um, and I, from the that that the first time I watched him, it probably did take me a couple minutes to kind of settle into his character, but before too long, I was like, "Yeah, this guy is freaking me out." Yeah, definitely, he's amazing. Oh <laughs> uh, well, let me run through some things. And yeah, I, let's I know. So the series opening, I thought was really interesting. Just the uh, the whole hostage situation. Mm-hmm. For one, I love the the changing tactics. Right, the guy, the the cop is out there with the megaphone, kind of hurling insults, uh, not insults, but threats at the guy. And there's this really great shot. And this goes back to Fincher being a master of, uh, using ups of the megaphone being tossed in a car. Uh, and it's this very subtle indication that there's now a change of direction. Like we're, we're taking yeah. a new approach and it's also cool that we stay at a distance from the gunman always like at best, I think we get to like a medium wide, uh, as he kills himself, which is super violent. And I'm glad that was not a close up because yeah. it was hard enough to watch him <laughs> from that distance. But I think the, the distance there is important because we need to get closer to understand what's going on in these people's minds. Um, even though that particular guy wasn't a, uh, a serial killer, he was still kind of emblematic of the problem, the disconnect between people with these mental health issues mm-hmm. and, you know, our ability to predict and help them to some degree. Going into more cinematography specific stuff, characters move, we move. Like 
particularly in mediums and close-ups like the simplest smallest movement they lean forward in the chair and we are dollying or sliding over to kind of match with absolute precision their movements the rock steady camera moves and locked off shots are persistent throughout the entire series and I think it's it's uh, very simple in terms of the reasoning. It's because they're FBI agents. They're sure. They're in control. They're measured. And that's all reflected in the camera movements. Every one of these things are absolutely precise, just like you should be if you're working in the FBI. The details are all right there, except for, I would say, maybe two two scenes. In season one, at the end, after the hug with Ed Kemper, when... Uh, Holden has that meltdown mm-hmm. and screams running away. Basically, uh, we suddenly go into this shocking handheld, uh, erratic and out of control movement as he's flying away and down the hall and he has his collapse and uh, his breakdown. And so having that moment there really helps emphasize that this guy has lost control and um, he's out of his mind right now. Uh, and simply put through the camera uh, movement. And in season two, they jumped to handheld during that march, that rally, where he's trying to set up the cross in time ahead of the rally. Oh, gosh, yeah. And it adds to this anxiety, and you feel how disheveled it all is, and it adds this level of disrespect to the proceedings because now yeah. everything feels out of place. And once again, emphasized through uh, the handheld camera movement. Yeah. Um, it's very simple, but yet very effective, especially when used in very, very sparing doses. Yeah. When the whole thing is based on locked off shots and, and just dolly moves and stuff. And all of a sudden you have, it's much more jarring and effective. Right? Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Awesome. There's this great shot. Uh, there's a long, that when Holden is for the first time walking into the prison corridor and he's being surrounded by the inmates and he's on his way to meet Ed Kemper for the first time. I love it. It's it's very shallow depth of field. It's a very tight frame on Holden's head and it's restricted our view um, while pumping up like the audio and the ambience and there's very little movement from Holden, which helps really emphasize his alertness and subtle terror as his eyes kind of dart from side to side, <laughs> trying to keep his cool. Uh, but you can just feel the, the terror creeping up on him and, and it infects us, too, because now just similar to him, we can't really see what's out of out of the peripherals. And if something's going to happen to him as he's a little exposed in this environment like this. Um, and certainly sets up meeting Ed Kemper and being vulnerable to this, you know, 11 foot <laughs> human being. Yeah. yeah. I love in the, the third episode, uh, season one, the framing around Dwight, the, uh, the guy who's living with his mom, who I forget who, oh, the, uh, he's, he's killed someone and, and they're kind of assisting, uh, some cops and this is the guy who's been killing old ladies and their dogs. Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay, and they 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 got a lead on this guy, and so they have him. They pull him outside outside his house, and they're interrogate interrogating him. And it's interesting the way they start to close in around him because they start wide, but as uh, their bodies kind of hem in around him, it's very uh, symbolic in the frame. They're doing that too, like it's perfectly echoed in the scenes, uh, stakes, and progression. 
it's all reflected pretty well in the frame because their bodies are beginning to more and more close in around him within the frame as we're looking at him suddenly you know oh there's holding on the edge of the frame and there's uh bill tinch on the other edge of the frame mm-hmm. and now this guy's getting hemmed up as they're slowly locking him down into yeah. a confession um, and i think from there we cut directly to like beers <laughs> they're celebrating <laughs> but they're trapping him and it's, it's visually represented yeah yeah um i love in season two there's this really subtle thing they do uh with one of the victim's moms has these big coke bottle glasses and a lot of the times they don't like you can throw a polarizer on your camera to cut out a lot of those reflections, but they don't. They let those reflections stay in her glasses. And I think it's to obscure her eyes and makes it hard to read her because she's hardened. She's not letting anybody in. It's very reflective of her, uh, her toughness. Uh, just the inability to see someone's eyes can be, can add a lot to their character. Yeah. And, it's, and it just makes it more real, right? Like yeah. a lot, like people's glasses reflect like that should, yeah. you know, yeah. But it just feels like she's staring straight through you. Like you can't get to her, but she's she's measuring you. Um and it's beautiful. I loved her. I loved her performance and just was incredible. It like broke your heart and it it made you actually like feel for the people who had died that you don't even meet in That's in right. the series because which is very important because if you think about it like most of these victims you never see, you never meet. It's just, you're meeting the people and learning about the people who actually killed them. So to have a representative of at least one or a few of them that are getting to, that you're getting to know, like seeing them strong and fighting, you know, to, for, uh, Retribution, yeah, really is like very important. Uh, and yeah. it was, and I loved it too because without that, I kind of only feel sorry for Holden for getting the brunt of stuff that he has nothing to do with, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But instead, I'm looking at Holden saying, "Man, it sucks of you right now, but I understand where they're coming from because mm-hmm. they don't really, to some extent, they don't care where you know someone's promising help. They've been promised a thousand times before, and they're they just keep getting their heart broken and they keep fighting." for something that uh, the world is effectively telling them doesn't matter. Yeah. And so you, yeah, you're right, man. You just empathize with these women and it's perfectly embodied through her. God. Yeah. She was incredible. Um, As far as the color goes. Yeah. I noticed a lot of scenes were either one of two colors. Typically it seemed to be yellow or that blue or greenish uh, kind of tint. And in season one, it's very different from season two. And I, couldn't quite pick out the reasoning behind season two, but in season one, it seemed to be a lot of safety stuff. Like the yellow scenes were often like FBI headquarters, police departments, uh, people's homes like Debbie's and Holden's, uh, the streetlights and the airplane, restaurants, church, even uh, certain prison inmates uh, like Speck, where Holden kind of crosses the line uh, whenever he starts talking about what gives you the right to take away eight ripe you know, uh, foulness and, and in the hospital even. Um, and that's interesting. I'll come back to the hospital in a second if I don't lose track. Um, whereas the blue scenes usually were like the prisoner interviews like Ed and Monty, or if they're, they're working on a suspect, it seemed to be usually blue or at least split between blue and yellow. Like as they're interrogating, um, the, the three, uh, that ended up, you know, being all in it together. Some, a lot of those scenes have mixes of blue and yellow. 
And I think it it adds a little bit to our instinct of how cold these people are. And so it's kind of reflecting that coldness through the their color choices. But what was interesting is in the hospital. And so you, especially in the first season, you have a whole season of this kind of uh, subliminal programming going on. And in that hospital scene where he goes to meet Ed, Ed is like laying in the bed and he's got the yellow or maybe green kind of going. But whenever he shifts and stands up, suddenly he's back in blue. Oh, interesting. And that's when uh, all hell kind of breaks loose. What, he goes in for that. What's the, the blue? What's the symbolism so, for the blue? So, yeah, I think it's just kind of representing just, their psychopathy and okay. uh, their their cold nature. And I, I think it, uh, I mean, they also use it for other stuff like to differentiate seasons and cities. Like if you're on the West Coast, they're probably going to be a little bit more yellow than, you know, wintertime in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, multiple uses there for sure. But often, especially when you're dealing with the people, uh, they tended to pick these colors very specifically. Yeah, I think a lot of it was trying to in, instill or stir our, our psychopathy instincts. Yeah. Um, and But in season two, it, it shifted in a way that uh, I couldn't quite pin down the reasoning because... Blue would be kind of erratically tossed in uh, like they're talking to the informant who's in the backseat that they're not even allowed to turn around and, and speak to directly. That's a that's a blue scene. And whereas yellow could be like the inmate interviews suddenly we're now yellow. And I was yeah, thinking, I noticed that. Yeah, I was that like, threw me off a little bit. Why? And then I began to think, OK, well, maybe they're transitioning from the inmates now are no longer a danger or a threat. Uh, whereas introducing it that first time felt something is off, like this feels much more cold and dangerous. And so maybe now it's a little bit more safe. Uh, and maybe the, the, the danger blue, so to speak, was moved more towards those real life scenarios. But even that, I mean, Atlanta, most, most of those scenes were, were yellow, even when we're talking with Wayne. I don't know. I thought the most interesting one use of uh, season two, blue and yellow, was when they were in the waiting room, when Brian is in therapy and Bill Tinch is with his wife in the waiting room. It was really interesting because Bill is blue, his, his wife is yellow, and they're sitting side by side. And what's extra interesting about that is Bill is sitting right next to a yellow lamp, like motivation wise the lighting on him should be yellow um and there's no lighting next to his wife that would you know motivate that lighting and so they went out of their way to kind of set that up and it's very reflective of their disconnect they're separating yeah yes yes yes. um but that's funny that like the lamp is on his side yeah but he's still blue it really makes him stand out like he doesn't belong there he's not buying it okay gotcha something like that yeah but yeah i thought the use of color in here is always interesting especially i mean and on a more simpler level a lot of the yellow is very very easy to use in this period piece because this is the 70s and 80s and so using yellow kind of gives it that faded photograph feeling and helps set the, the time period especially since we're shooting digitally and this is a lot of 4k footage and so uh, if you can't use analog mediums like camera, uh, you know, film stock, then using a heavy color grade really helps contribute to that that period setting. Um, even though a lot of opening scenes, they would do uh, kind of a fuzzy filter, like a little film stock filter in the opening shots. And literally just for like an opening shot and then we cut to a close up of that same shot and now we're back in full digital. That's great. Um, so they were just, yeah, <laughs> just so, playing with it. Yeah. Just tinkering. As far as editing goes, 
watching Fincher do bar scenes is always entertaining to me. Like from the social network, you know, through fight club. I feel like most of his stuff has a bar scene in it and he just shoots bars. Very interesting. He's, he often likes to shoot them like bars depending on, you know, what kind of bar you're in. Like, uh, whenever Holden is meeting Debbie for the first time, you know, it's that same style of let's crank up the audio so that they're kind of yelling at each other in a bar. And it's just funny. I also really love, and I think I'll come back to that at some point. I know I have other notes on that. And so as far as editing goes, purely the reaction shots, I really love in this like reaction shots. And just to be clear, it's like, Oh, two people are talking and while someone isn't speaking, you see how they're reacting to what's being said um, by someone else. And so here, and that's a normal thing. I mean, we get reaction shots in movies all the time. What I love about the use in this though, I think it's incredibly different from most other uses in the sense that, as disturbing conversations are being had, we see how normal people react who are outside the conversation. So like when they're interviewing and trying to pin down uh, that girl who was murdered and dumped in a a dumpster, Uh like we're seeing Holden and Bill kind of pin down this guy and they start talking really raw and gross. And it's, you know, especially by 1970s standards, it's unbecoming. <laughs> and so we cut to see Mark's reaction to some of these comments yeah. and it, just yeah. the, the visceral reaction that he has on his face. It's like, what are we doing here, guys? Yeah. Um, and I think it's important because, for one, any other movie that you see that happen, you're expecting Mark to do something. He's yes. going to step in and yes. he's going to like put him into this. Um, but that's not what they do here. Instead, it's giving us an outlet It allows us an outlet at acknowledging how disturbing this all is. And it's a good reminder that this isn't normal. This is gross. This is uh, absolutely appalling and disturbing. And without those those reaction shots, I think it kind of begins to uh, affect us a little too much where it becomes normal. And we need to constant reminders that this crap is not normal. Yeah. And it's okay to know that it's not normal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it wow. pulls us back and maybe keeps it fresh all the same. And so that we constantly keep reacting through the eyes of some of these people who aren't, you know, uh, inoculated by the constant conversation and numbed out to it all. I love wow. that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well said, man. Dang. That's freaking cool. Yeah. Um, dipping into like the writing and storytelling, it's always interesting to see how com- Fincher loves conversations. And I think he probably has a heavy hand in how some of these conversations develop. I love all the bouncing back and forth in a conversation, like going back to that bar scene where Holden meets Debbie. They progress the conversation and bring up past topics and uh, little bits and pieces. Like for one minute, they might be talking about, yeah, what do you what do you think about my clothes? And like, Oh, are we flirting? And then he comes back to, you really think I dress uh, too uptight? And like, I love those little back and forth because uh, it shows that they're thinking and feeling things. They have these inner lives. And of course it adds to the charm of the interaction instead of just this one steady progression forward where the, yeah. 
like conversations aren't always these linear things. Like, yeah, they come in chunks and like, sometimes you'll, you'll have a good one. Sometimes you'll have a bad one. Sometimes it'll, it'll kind of take you in a place. Other times it's just kind of meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. And you might say a comment that I chew on for the next five minutes and then bring and circle back to it. Right. Like, yeah, man, you're talking about procrastinating a minute ago, like blah, blah, blah. Like that's how real conversations unfold. And, uh, it's just an excellent job of that pitter patter, especially whenever you're trying to have this meet cute scenario where they're oh, they're falling say, in love did you just say that a meet oh, cute that's oh, old hollywood uh terminology of you know two characters getting together in the is cute. that old hollywood oh yeah that's ancient hollywood stuff oh man yeah <laughs> and um even after that scene the concert after um i love there's this great line when they're they're having this conversation about power dynamics and Debbie kind of levels uh, Holden with this line. Oh, you don't like women disagreeing with you. Very unusual for a man in law enforcement. Um, (laughs) I love that line because it's, it's irony. Like she delivers it deadpan. And I, and that use of irony forces us to engage emotionally to understand the joke because now we have to irony. It doesn't without, without knowing something's irony, you just kind of take everything at face value. But when irony is injected into a conversation, suddenly you have to uh, understand why it's ironic and uh, what the underlying subtext is. And that's just a really good emotional engagement and a way to flesh out a character. Uh, And Debbie, I thought was just a fantastic character. I love uh, that. She has this really normal name, (laughs) Debbie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yet she's this kind of counter-cultural person. And, uh, and she's very useful storytelling wise because she keeps pushing forward all these psychological concepts of society and criminality and because that's what she's studying in school or whatever. And it's just a good excuse for them to connect and have something to bond over while keeping the, the themes of the, the series still very much in play and to progress Holden's uh you were on a roll. He's obsessed with it. Like his obsession with, yeah. with, uh, all these psychological elements that he feels like he needs to be exploring. And then also what another great thing about Debbie is we get to see their relationship form, come together, peak and fall apart. And it gives us an emotional arc to the season that kind of isn't really fully there in their research. Like there's no culmination of their research. And so having their relationship serve as uh, an emotional art gives us, you know, a really good way to start and end the season and have some fulfillment uh, come around. And we can also see a better view of Holden's arc through their relationship Um, because Holden is he's a really interesting character. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, Um, on the one hand, he's kind of robotic. Right. He's like this learning machine. Um, He's a little (laughs) computer with inputs and outputs and he's just kind of watching and studying. And and he is. He's always studying. He's always learning, uh, especially towards the the beginning of the season, whenever he's hungry, even in sex. Right. He's getting notes on how to perform oral sex in bed. And it's so funny because it it feels like it's perfectly uh encapsulates his character where he's just like robotically understanding how to go down on a woman like (laughs) and she's playing teacher and like hey shut up just do what i'm telling you (laughs) (laughs) and but i think as you go further into the season like that that ambition to learn kind of goes away and it gets replaced by arrogance and cockiness. Yes. yes, yes. And ultimately it leads to his uh, falling apart. It's also interesting because that kind of roboticness, even though he is so stilted and I, 
I don't even want to call him stoic because I don't think he is stoic. Uh, mm. But he has an incredibly awful poker face, dis- despite being so static. <laughs> he has yeah. a really bad poker face. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I feel like that might be difficult to pull off that he can't really hide what he's feeling all the time um, or what he's thinking, at least, even though, you know, that's kind of his job. Well, he's kind of a little in some ways in that regard on the spectrum a little mm, bit. Sure. It's just it's there's no filter, you know, and there really never is. You know, at first, at the beginning of the, of the show, he's he's just I have this thought. I have this idea. Maybe this is a thing. Yeah. And he doesn't know that it is. But he has a feeling that it is. And then and then when it comes to fruition that it is, well, that gives him the bolstery, the, the kind of like the ego to then feel like he's he can like he knows what he's doing when really this whole time he kind of doesn't. You know, they are more informed, but they're not really. But throughout the whole thing. He constantly is putting his foot in his mouth, saying things that he shouldn't say because he's awkward around people and he doesn't have the filter that a normal human, you know, being should. Right. (laughs) Um, maybe that's to his detriment at some points, like Mm. when the ego comes in later, but at the beginning, it's actually a good thing because he says things that nobody else, like everybody that has a filter doesn't say. Right. Yeah. And, and because of that, he actually gets people to pay attention to him because they're like, Oh yeah. At some point they have to kind of think, outside the box and he's the only one thinking outside the box. And so they go with it. I mean, it makes sense. I'm not saying it's easy to act that it's very, very hard (laughs) to act that, but yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I always saw him as someone who was on the spectrum as someone who is just like, he's brilliant and he sees things that are there that nobody else can see, but he doesn't really know how to relate to people in general. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of evident throughout yeah. the whole thing. He doesn't have girlfriends and like, you know, he's just a loner and his, he's like immaculately clean and, uh, yeah, you know, the yeah. typical kind he's of, not a very subtle person. No, at all. no, not at all. And, uh, my favorite is probably the, uh, the retirement party. Whenever he tries to get up and give a speech and <laughs> oh, the yeah. guy oh, just my walks gosh. out, just leaves. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> Oh, in going a little bit deeper into the story and writing stuff like the montage in the opening of season two, we're flying through their travels just then they get into this rhythm. And at first it's kind of fun uh, as we're seeing them eat and fly and sleep and interview and eat and fly and sleep and give presentations. But towards the middle or the end of that, we start to check out towards the end of that, too. I think much like they are because they're numb and tired to it all. And so as this thing starts out kind of interesting and fun, our eyes start to kind of glaze over and I'm, I realized my mind kind of drifted off. I was like, man, yeah, I bet that is how they feel. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. It, it was ended, you know, with great timing or else you go too long on that. And uh, I might really just not come back. <laughs> yeah. But as far as uh, going back to what you were talking about earlier, we rarely do see any violence like this is a dark film that we don't really ever get to experience that violence other outside that opening scene instead i think the horror is in our minds and represented in crime scene photos and we're forced to sit there and listen to you know sociopaths and psychos uh describe 
you know, without much emotion or fanfare, the ways they killed and dismembered human beings. Um, and I think that's probably horror enough. We don't really need to uh, dive too much into the visuals of that actually happening. And it, it makes it so much darker to watch their, their static faces deliver such gruesome imagery and we fill in those blanks in our mind. Uh, and of course, that's, that's the darkest place of all. Yeah. Because um, you can't, you probably can't film anything darker than what our vague imaginations will fill in. And that's many have tried many. Have. I don't know. I've seen yeah, that's one true. movie in particular. <laughs> yeah. um, there's also, I think some subtle psychological inserts, maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, depending on, you know, your view on this. Um, but like whenever they're interviewing Monty, this is, there's this guy who's a rapist and murderer and uh, he's giving him a hard time about, not wanting to talk and he wants big reds. And so they bring him some big reds. And so he starts drinking one, finishes it. Then he crushes a can and he asks, why do we like to do that? And Holden says, cause it feels good. And I think it's reflective of a pleasurable thing followed by an act of power or violence. And that's very reflective of him being a rapist and murderer he rapes someone and then he kills them. And then what I think is really interesting about that is he finishes his story. That's obviously disgusting and, and disturbing and chunks the, the, the crushed big red can carelessly towards the trash can. He doesn't even like make it in. Mm -hmm. He just chunks it at it, misses it. Uh, yeah. And it just reflects his attitude about the carcass of the thing he took pleasure from. Yep. Yep. This thing that he really wanted. Now I got it and whatever. Yeah. Like that's disturbing. And it's a very subtle, you know, view into his, his worldview. Um, similar, uh, maybe not similar. I don't think I want to have anything similar to that. <laughs> uh, um, but it, another psychological, I should finish that word. Psychosomatic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, thing that, th that I think they do is Holden's instincts are really interesting about uh, Debbie and Patrick. Like he gets insanely jealous about this Patrick guy and whether that be, was a self-fulfilling prophecy or not. I don't know. I don't think so. I think his instincts were right about them. And I think it goes back to the same thing. That same gut instinct about detecting psychopaths uh, can start with our guts, you know, just like someone being unfaithful in a relationship uh, and it's reflective there. And, and of course, after, as a result of that, that whole experience, Holden is now experiencing a stressor after having his heart broken. And that's one of those classic things that his uh, interview subjects are, are dealing with. Usually, you know, these things pop up, the stressors that they talk about everyone going through. Now Holden is dealing with a stressor. And I think there was another one with the cat food. I was paying attention to that. It, went, it ran over like three episodes and I, I kind of lost track of where that ended. If that was just the answer, if she discovered like a dead cat body. I don't remember how that whole thing ended. Um, oh, I, yeah, I don't. And so I, I wasn't remember, able to draw a, a good line about what the psychological answer of that would be. What do you think about the, the added um, uh, storyline of, of Bill's son and the, and the kid? Man. And his son, Brian. Yeah. I mean, it's super disturbing. And I think I thought, I assume many people did whenever you're first learning about his involvement, you're just assuming, Oh, this is a reflection of Bill's work. 
being brought out through the kid. And I love that they never really address that. Uh, I think yeah. Bill is afraid to. Yeah. Um, that's, right. a, that's a big regret and thing. But to me, that's one of the creepiest things about the entire show. And I don't think... I don't think it really happened. I think the show itself is based on true events, but I think that's one of the events, at least in some of the research I did that like that, that it, there's nothing that says that that actually happened, mm-hmm. which makes me first, I was wondering, okay, well why put that in? Right. So you, there's other storylines you can put in, you know, that would kind of like make sense. This is so, uh, on the nose, Maybe like his son killing another kid, like, or being accused of it. It's super inventive, uh, for sure, because I'm glad at a minimum they start to address the, the, the trauma that these guys are going through as agents investigating them, being inundated with this stuff day after day. Yeah. But also the trauma that that inflicts on their families. That's the new wrinkle that uh, I I don't know. I've seen explored in this way before where suddenly his kid is now reaping the the rewards of his job. Yeah. And I just I'm not saying it was bad. I thought it was brilliant. I I just was was wondering, like, what made them think to Mm -hmm. do that? Like that's so specific and so on the nose to what they do every day for a living that that. I mean, I, maybe they just saw the forest for the trees and, and, and said, let's just go there. Why not? Uh, but it was super creepy. I mean, I was more uncomfortable going through that whole thing with Bill than I think almost any other time mm-hmm. in the show, to be honest, like the only other time I felt that uncomfortable was talking to Kemper. Oh yeah. The first couple of times. Mm-hmm. Maybe and in, including the end of season one, right? Like yeah. That that whole scene, mm-hmm. right? That was, I was, I remember, like, yeah, I was breathless. <laughs> yeah, I was like not breathing, um, which you know, yeah. Anyway, probably he wasn't either. But short of those interviews with Kemper, the first few times in the first season, I felt like like the whole Brian thing, Bill's son was so creepy and so inventive, and just kept everything moving forward because I was the whole time I was like, there's no way he did this. Are you kidding me? They think his son did this. No way his son did this. Is that real? That can't be real. Did that really happen? Oh my God. Google did that. Happen? <laughs> um, it, it just totally kept me in invested in bill and then bill, you know, having to go back and forth between like being on, on site, uh, uh, working and then being home for his son and going to, you know, the counselors or the son and everything. It's like just, but he can't say anything, uh, to Holden. And so nobody knows what's going on. They just think he's like skirting his job and, and stuff, moonlighting or whatever. Man, it's just, it was a war for him. I felt so bad. And he's such a great character. For one, yeah. I would have a really hard time, with, no matter the circumstance, if I'm trying to talk to a kid, my kid, any kid, any human being, and they just won't speak back to me. That's, man, that's going to be a meltdown city for me. I have a really hard time with that. Uh, yeah, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm just going to stare at you for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> Like unresponsiveness is really difficult for me. And that scenario especially would be really hard because you see your kid is hurting and all you want to know is what can I do? Um, And I think Bill's such an interesting character because of that, because he cares about his family. Yeah. He's not someone who doesn't give a crap, but at the same time, 
he is very, he's teaching his kid how to communicate through the way he communicates with his wife, which is not at all. Like he, he's terrible. And she kind of picks at him in, you know, dinner parties and uh, here and there about his inability to say how he's feeling. See, I don't know that it, that's, I, I don't think I that's a hundred percent the reason behind his kid. Yeah. Um, no, that, no, no. I mean like his communication with his wife. Well, she makes these comments to him about, because Holden and Debbie are kind of showing off their relationship a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but they're new. They're like, new. But she makes that comment about to Bill, you know, like, see, some people can talk about their feelings. And he just kind of rolls his eyes. And he never wants to really have those. We never see any of those conversations. He's always, I'm tired. I just need to get rest. He never really emotionally engages with his wife. But we also at the same time know that he loves his wife. Like, I don't think we ever question that love. Uh, We just question his ability to communicate it in a way that she needs to to feel it. And I love that complexity of character uh, because you're never rooting against Bill. I love Bill. Yeah. He's like the greatest. Yeah. Like he doesn't come home and like yell at his wife. He like never yells like like he's just very composed and 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 caring. It's just she needs something that he isn't giving her. Uh, and I totally identify with that. I get that. That's yeah. so interesting. Great character. Yeah. And throughout the, I mean, this entire series, it's mostly people talking. Like we sit in rooms and we watch people talk about things that have already happened. <laughs> yeah. There's very little doing anything. Yeah. Like even when they're doing something, they're sitting in a car waiting <laughs> like, <laughs> and talking. Yeah. <laughs> like there's very, so incredibly little action that they ever get to do. And it's still so fascinating. And especially whenever you start to analyze a lot of the, the camera movements and camera angles and the way that uh, sometimes I thought it was really funny. I don't think I included them. Yeah. I didn't include Greg, Greg Smith, the, uh, Oh yeah. The little add on the Uh little traitor, um, in the midst, like, because I think it's funny to leave him out in the same way that he kind of gets left out throughout the whole time, the whole time. (laughs) Like there's times whenever you're watching a conversation unfold, you forget he's there because they literally keep him out of the frame. (laughs) Yeah. And then he talks and you kind of cut to him for a second and come back to everybody else. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. That's your FaceTime. There you go. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's and it goes to the heart of everything I think Fincher does well, which is interesting people having interesting conversations. Yeah. And for us, the audience, we're definitely tuned in to learn for sure. uh, But also because, yeah, we're just fascinated and... He shoots talking heads like nobody else, man. Yeah, man. It's so weird. It's, it's, I can't wrap my head around how freaking good and simple that is, (laughs) but how hard it is to do. Yeah. Like I couldn't write that. No. Good Lord. Well, he didn't write it, right? True. Good point. He can't write it either. (laughs) (laughs) Can he not? Does he write? I don't think, you know, I don't think so. Yeah. I uh, didn't need to, I guess. Yeah. If he does, he certainly doesn't take any credit for it. Yeah. I'd be, I, I would be shocked if he isn't like, he's probably tweaking things. Yeah. in rehearsals and saying, no, 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 you need to be faster. That's on the cusp. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, Hey writer, there's not enough of X, Y, Z, um, interjecting dialogue, overlapping dialogue, whatever. I'm yeah. sure he's working all those t- kinks out and it's probably really nice to be a director and to see those things and not be responsible for fixing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I got. That's your spiel? That's my spiel. That's a pretty good hour-long spiel. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think if I have anything to add. I mean, uh, I, don't think, I don't think I do. I really enjoyed it. I thought all your points were, fi- were like spot on. Do you have a favorite section? I would say the first five episodes. Mm. As they're getting going and As they're getting going and like finding out like this is a thing. Yeah. Like this is a real thing. I, because when I first started watching it, I didn't know that it was based on true events. I didn't know that it was, I, I, I only, and honestly, actually now that you bring it up, or that I brought it up, I only thought that maybe it would be based on true events because I was watching it. Hmm. And because of the way it was put together, I was like, this looks like it maybe could have happened for real. Like it's shot, it's written and shot in a way that's not cinematic, right? So it's meaning, meaning like there is, there's a a formula, right? Mm -hmm. You have a beginning, you have a middle, you have an end, you have the climax, you have an arc, all of those things. I didn't feel that in the first few episodes. I felt like everything was a steady grow. like steady growth and there was no pushback where in a normal story there would be pushback like when you had the um the chief right he was always like basically on their side like telling them okay i agree with this yeah you know like let's let's move forward and you're like in every cop movie you have the chief saying get in your lane you don't do this like this isn't (laughs) you're a loose cannon yeah exactly (laughs) and that did not happen i thought okay all right. Well, that didn't happen. Okay. And, and just, you know, a few other things that just kind of made me think this maybe would have played out in real life this way. Mm. And so I think it maybe, maybe four episodes in where I finally was like, Did this really happened. This, this feels like it really happened. And then finally I looked it up like, Oh, it's based on true events. Oh, that makes total sense. And then, you know, and then it changed, everything changed like from then on out, but like everything leading up to like actually speaking to, uh, I guess it was Kemper, right. Mm-hmm. It was the first one they spoke to, uh, was just a fantastic lead up. And I still, to that point, didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how much or how little action there was going to be. Same. Yeah. You know, I kept waiting for action to happen and it never came or rarely like little came in little bits. And then I was comparing it in my head to, um, True Detective. Oh, sure. In many ways. But True Detective, there was way more action in. And there wasn't even that much action in True Detective, right. you know, in, a, in some ways, or at yeah. least in the beginning, right? Um, but, but you know, there there are a lot of car driving scenes, just like True Detective. It's two guys, two detectives, which makes me think True Detective, right. the first season based on true events. I don't know. Uh, but anyway... It, it made me think of True Detective, which the first season, which I love and still is one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, pieces of, of, of scripted uh, like a mini episodes, yeah. episodic yeah. That, that I've seen. Right. It's just I love it. Uh, so, yeah, it made me think of that. So I identified with the, the characters a lot, a lot more right away. I didn't expect a whole lot after the meeting with Kemper. Like the meeting with Kemper was, OK, if anything's going to happen, it's probably going to happen around this time and nothing did really. So I thought, okay, all right, I'm going to settle in, right? <laughs> this is going to be what it is. Long haul. Cool. Uh, but yeah, I would say the beginning was definitely my first section, meaning like the first four or five episodes, I guess. That's awesome. So, yeah. I think if I had, if I had to pick like a favorite thing that I, I reference mentally, uh, a lot is all the red tape Holden ends up dealing with in Atlanta. Oh gosh. Like yeah. he's yeah. like, yeah. So can we pass these flyers out? Oh yeah. Well, 
well, do you have your work order? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, you don't? Well, do you have your PO number? No. Okay, so you're going to want to go down and get your PO, <laughs> that. and that'll get yeah. your work number. Yeah. But I promise, as soon as you get that done, you know, uh, you can. We'll get, this, we'll get those copies out and uh, distributed. You already have uh, permission from all the counties? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're gonna need that. You know, <laughs> and it just was a never-ending, uh, yeah, Kafka-esque nightmare. And I'm sure that cops, uh, totally, any cop that is watching this, <laughs> probably totally identify with that. Yep, that's how that goes. Yep. Um, but yeah, I I personally love that kind of stuff because to me it epitomizes everything that's wrong with uh, bureaucracy. Yep. In general, and that includes both governmental and corporate. Like totally, man. they're all there. Yeah, <laughs> it's all there. Yeah. But yeah. That's so. Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, great suggestion. Yeah. Way to go, Junie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. What are you going to recommend this week? I want you to go first. Dang it. Okay. So I was on the, I was, it was really hard because I really wanted to recommend Manhunt because it's so almost dead on similar to Mindhunter that anybody who liked Mindhunter, I would be really surprised if you didn't love Manhunt. Um, it's got Sam Worthington, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it's really good, but I really love what HBO is doing right now with The Outsider. And since that's an ongoing oh. show, I'm going to recommend that this week. It's it's fantastic. It, uh, it's based on a Stephen King novel, if that is informative at all. And it's also mostly being created and run by uh, Richard Price, who has who's a, an incredible author who's written things like clockers um and uh, lush life i think and he worked a lot on the wire and so while the outsider isn't nearly the same kind of slow burn that the wire is uh you can feel the the perfect pitch perfect writing and performances man i'm really excited anytime i see uh, his name on it so the outsider on hbo highly recommend checking that out especially while it's still airing Cool. Cool. Um, I'm going to recommend something totally different. Um, it was something that has nothing. The Muppet show. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're close. (laughs) Something that has nothing to do with this because I needed a palate cleanser after this. Right. And uh, so I like watching a lot of comedy a lot of times with my wife because she doesn't like to watch a whole lot of movies because they stress her the hell out and she doesn't like to be stressed. Um, but I got into, uh, uh, Mike Birbiglia. Oh, really? Yeah. And he has a new special out on Netflix called The New One. And if you don't know anything about Mike Birbiglia, just go watch this and it'll tell you everything you need to know about this dude. And I will say, I didn't know anything really about him. I knew that he had been around for a long time. He's been around a long time, yeah. but I didn't know, I didn't know details about him or anything. And it really paid off because I didn't know these things. He sets up his whole bit his whole, this whole special really, really well to the point where you find out things about him about an hour in and you're like, Oh, everything you just, Oh, that's crazy. Everything you just said. And this is a stand up special. It's stand up special. It's brilliant. And it's hilarious. And especially those of you out there, if you, if you have kids, uh, it's great for you. Or if you don't have kids, really, it's also (laughs) really great for you. And it nails home things that you, that you would think as a non kid owner, you would happen if you were, if you were a kid owner, am I saying owner, (laughs) a parent, if you're, if you're not a parent, anything you can think about what it would be like to have a parent, it, it kind of fulfills that. And if you are a parent, everything you feel, everything that you want to say that you can't say, he says, 
But yeah, it's just really wonderful and hilarious and 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 brilliant. That's awesome. And maybe a, go watch other things. Yeah, I was a big fan of Don't Think Twice, so I'm yes, definitely yes, going to yes, check yes. this out. I think I watched that immediately after. Did you? I was like, I want more. I want more. He's go watch that. Fantastic. So good. And he's so like chill. Yeah. You know, I love it. Um, so anyway, a uh, short spotlight this week is <laughs> this. I don't know what else to call it other than sexy vampire horror comedy. It's like this 90 second. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. It's really funny. I don't know that it was meant to be funny. Like this was a guy's first uh, movie. And these are just a couple scenes from his first movie. And it was made in like 1988, kind of a direct to VHS scenario. So oh this is something God. that I can't wait to watch this. It just blew me away. Like I was rolling. Um, it's I'm going to watch it immediately yeah. after we're done taping. <laughs> and it's by Glenn Andrea. V- you've really good at names. Um, <laughs> yeah. So on that note, um, <laughs> shout outs. <laughs> um, Junie, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our episode on Mindhunter. It only cost us like 20 hours of prep. <laughs> God, you better appreciate this. Really better. And Izzy sent this awesome uh, email. Where uh, our last episode, or episode two ago, whenever we linked threads uh, in the... Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, dude, he that. had all these great insights on it. And he also showed it to his fam, uh, sat down uh, his uh, wife and uh, daughter and was like, hey, you're going to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> dude, thank you, man. That means so much. Uh, it's so rare to have anybody dude, look at your work. Just you know? love it. Um Man, I, I, you know, like we really, really appreciate it. Those kinds of things keep us going more than you know, really do. So, so thank you so much for that. Appreciate it, bro. Yeah. Um, also want to give a hat tip to my boy, Hari, uh, Yewal pride. He dropped a review on uh, iTunes for us. So man, appreciate that. I know he tuned in for last week's episode, uh, the three rules of fat loss stuff and, Man, that, that's been really fun to see kind of people's reactions to that. I've gotten a few notes Amazing. here and there. People saying like, hey, man, I'm on my third day of, you know, dieting down. And Oh, uh, that's great. Man, yeah. the page looks great. Thanks, man. That was... It is solid. I mean, like literally if anybody ever, anybody out there, if you ever want to lose any weight or, or know anybody who does, just send them that page. Uh, what's the what's the link? Pestpodcast.com slash fat loss. Fat loss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just send them to that page and say, have fun. See you in six months. Go for it. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's unbelievable. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, also, want to give a hat tip, hat tip to our new patron. Yeah. Uh, patron, I, I never know what to say. Uh, Stratum. Yeah. Thanks. I don't I don't know Stratum. Man, that's so exciting. But thank you. Yes. To have someone that we don't know pop yeah, up know. on our Patreon. I know. Um, we have some really awesome friends um, and uh, listeners who comment frequently that are on there and that moves us so much for sure. Uh, and it's also really, really cool when someone you don't know at all just pops up on there. Yeah. That's freaking cool, man. I mean, um, or one, whoever you are, Stratum, uh, we are big fans. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and I think we might, we might, uh, start, I, I liked your idea earlier before yeah. we started. I think we might start doing that. So there'll be a lot more, uh, a lot more features coming at you guys like way ahead of time. Way ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to start a new format. Yeah. And sorry about the, the delay. The, this new year's kind of kicked my butt between uh, getting that last episode together. That took a lot out of me. Um, That's okay. And then, you know, prepping it. for this one definitely yeah. <laughs> took took some time. And so yeah. we will certainly be much more consistent. And by the time this airs, hopefully uh, we've already got some stuff 
posted yep. and catching up on our patron stuff. So thank you for everyone uh, for for your patience and yeah. for checking in um, as well. That's really cool. And stay tuned for next week for episode number 100, 100, 100. What? How? <laughs> what? A hundred episodes? That's crazy, man. That's insane. Uh, in the computer? <laughs> in the computer. Uh, yeah, we were in a totally different house before. Um, Whoa. You know, a uh, totally different room. and You didn't, didn't have a beard? Have, oh, I forgot. Yeah, all my kids' stuff now. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> welcome. Hey, welcome to school. Uh, yeah, my kids are homeschooling now for a little while. So this is we're in their actual uh, classroom right now. So much has changed. <laughs> so much has in changed. In 100 episodes. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe that. And so we're going to uh, have a revisit. Yeah, we. so Wes and I have... It, we finish each other's sandwiches <laughs> and, um, if you if you nod to frozen anyway, we have, we, we are very much alike in a lot of ways in our tastes and stuff, but we actually share love for the same movie is our favorite movie. Uh, which is crazy that yeah. we both love this. Like it's our favorite movie and we just got to see it in 70 millimeter yesterday. Was it yesterday? No, two Just days today. ago. Yeah, two days ago. It, uh, uh, at the Ritz uh, downtown, Alamo. Uh, we're gonna, so our hundredth episode. We're gonna do Interstellar. Boom! Uh, and we did it before episode two on episode two. But Wes has a thing where he only will watch it in a theater. <laughs> He's never watched it at home. He might own it. That's true. But he doesn't watch it. That's and, true. <laughs> uh, I think that that's crazy. I've seen it probably three times more than he has because every now and then I'll just be like, I want to watch this, my favorite movie and I'll put it on and it's amazing. And you don't get to enjoy that. So we got to see it together, uh, two nights ago in 70 millimeter on the big screen. And there are a a lot of things, notes. I'm going to have to watch it again before we do this, because there were a lot of notes that I walked out with that it's a lesson on how to make a great film Mm. and it has everything. It's, Everything to do with everything from the camera movement to the storytelling to, f- to tying up loops to um, feeling like you're immersed in a world, even if you're not on a world and how to do that kind of thing. And it's it's just a it's it's amazing. Yeah, I can't I, wait to talk about it again. I, I think we're going to cover entirely new stuff. So if you've listened to the our first version uh, yeah. Episode two, this will cover entirely new stuff. And Buzz, um, we didn't know what the hell we were doing in episode two. Yeah. We're so just, we were just like talking. So I have no idea. I probably need to go back and listen to that because, just to be embarrassed a little bit. Yeah. I have no I'll idea. probably just review my notes because I don't know if I I'm can. I'm going to go that. back and listen. <laughs> and I'm going to like cut out little sections and send them to you. <laughs> I'm really excited though. So stay tuned for next week when we do uh, interstellar redux. Mm -hmm. Um, And don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes. Uh, If you want us to cover a thing like uh, Mindhunter or something that is less than 20 hours, then, you know, feel free to drop (laughs) us. I don't know if I can do that again. (laughs) Um, There are other shows I hope we cover at some point. Like Halt and Catch Fire, I think would be a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. And a bunch of others. But um, these are fun to sprinkle in for sure because. Of all the reasons that would be next time we do one, we should probably cover why TV shows are different from movies because, uh, that's a really interesting conversation I've had, you know, well, uh, we, we've talked times. it, we've brought that up yeah. a few times on different episodes and stuff. Every Discussing now and then. movies. Yeah. Yeah. Like the difference between like yeah. what makes a good TV show as opposed to what makes a good. True. Movie. Yeah. Sorry I think you're that. right. 
Um, but yeah, we can definitely cover that in detail. And so, yeah, if you want to comment on this episode specifically, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash mindhunter. And the quote of the day we'll leave you with is from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. What made you pick that? You know, uh, if you don't know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, wrote Sherlock Holmes. Um, And so I like that idea of someone from, I have no idea, like the 1800s, uh, 1850s. I'm not sure whenever he was around doing his thing, but... He was so far ahead of the game in terms of using deductive reasoning that I think he would have taken to uh, profiling like no one else. And this is certainly a graduation on a lot of the things that he liked to write about and, you know, in this kind of pop pulpy way. And yeah, so I was just like, I wonder what, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle has to say about anything really, but uh, specifically that. And yeah, I love that general idea, you know, use the data first. Don't walk in with your theory and try to assert your theory into the data. No, use the data to deduce a a conclusion. Yeah. I think what, what is the term for when you, when you know nothing about something and then you learn a little bit about it and you think you know a lot. Dunning-Kruger? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yep. Where you, you, when you learn a little bit about something, you think you, ha- you know everything about it. And then the more you learn about it, the more you know you don't know. And so the confidence gets flipped upside yeah, down. Yeah. So at the very beginning, when you learn something, your confidence is up here. Yeah. And then the more you learn, your confidence declines, yeah. right? <laughs> and then when you know like pretty much everything, you have like no confidence in it at all. <laughs> it's a law of diminishing yeah. returns uh, on an epic scale. I feel like that has a lot to do with it, that. That's what this makes me think mm-hmm. of. Because a lot of times when you learn a little bit about something, you might start to theorize. I mean, I do. I, I am guilty of it because I love like learning about space and physics and stuff like that i know nothing and yet i have a lot of theories you know what i'm saying yeah i have a lot of theories and i also have data but i don't understand the data so i just discard the data (laughs) and just deliver my theories theories are so much more fun (laughs) i mean they really are right and i think maybe one day i'll say a crazy theory to somebody who actually knows what the heck i'm talking about and they'll be like oh my god you're brilliant and then all of a sudden i'll have a million dollars and you know everything will be fantastic That's where I went with that. Awesome. Okay, cool. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. This was awesome. It was really great. Join us next week. We'll be doing Interstellar again. I'm very excited about that. So uh, make sure to watch it before uh, beforehand so you don't need to pause the episode when we tell you about the spoilers. Unless unless you refuse to watch it on TV. Just go watch the dang thing. It's, it's yeah, just, Junie Marie, just, you better be tuning in next week. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, until then, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch the movies.